Reflecting on this part of Zechariah, uh, I found myself reliving a moment many years ago where I was in a, a like a leadership management training program thing. Uh, I don't know, I can't remember what it was called, but it was this thing where we're, I was being trained on leadership. And I was in a situation where I was working under one ministry leader and then volunteering a lot of my time with a church and helping out significantly. I remember at one point during this event, um, they decided to board and it was like, question one was like, what is life and work like when you're under bad leadership? And then on the other board was, what is life like when you're under like good leadership? And as people start throwing out all of these ideas of like, what is good leadership? What's bad leadership? What's the impact it has on you? As I am digging into my experience to try and figure out what goes on each of these charts, the sad thing was that whenever I was thinking about bad leadership, I was thinking about one of the bosses. Whenever I was thinking of good leadership, I was thinking about the other. And, and you know the sorts of things, right? When you're under bad leadership, like, you, it, what, what are the things? You start feeling low, you're not excited to come in, you feel micromanaged. It's, it's those, uh, you stop taking initiative, you just decide, you know, I know what my job description is, that's all I'm going to do. Any, anyone done that? <laughs> oh, I'm the only one. Okay, there's one other person, you know. Where you just dig in your feet, like, I know what this is like. You, start, you, don't, wanna, you don't get creative anymore, you don't get innovative, you do the bare minimum, uh, you stop talking to them, you dread work, you leave tired. Um, but then this other, the, the other side of the equation, I was thinking about this person that I was working with, and they were empowering and they were encouraging, and they saw who I was, and they saw my gifts, and they were encouraging me to step in. There was high trust uh, in that place. I was being creative. I was being innovative. I was, uh, I was making lots of mistakes, but when I made them, they were celebrated as good attempts were over here. They were torn down. I would come in in this space. I would walk in the room, and I would have an idea, and I would just start working on some things, and they'd walk in. What are you working on? I'm like, oh, wait till I show you what I'm doing. And they are like, oh, that's amazing that we didn't think about that. Keep working on it. And this environment, one day I was in and I was cleaning a window. My boss comes in and goes, why are you cleaning a window? I was like, because it's dirty. Don't do that. That's not your job. So, so stop cleaning the window. What would you like me to do instead? Well, I need to go into my office. Give me 10 minutes and then I'll let you know. And I'm like, Okay. So I sat there for 10 minutes and then he came out and I was like, so what do you want me to do? He's like, yeah, probably clean the window. (laughs) Yeah, you've all had these experiences, right? We know what it's like when you're under good leadership. We know what it's like when we're under bad leadership. Everything at this portion of Zechariah is God's deduction of these two pieces. What is good leadership? What is bad leadership? Let me just reverse a little bit and, and do what I do every week. Remind us where we're at in the story. So we're in Zechariah. God has chosen the people of Israel. He's led them into the promised land. They've had the tabernacle. They've built the temple. They've walked away from the covenant. As a result of that, God has exiled them from the land. So the northern tribes were taken away by Assyria. The the southern tribe was taken away by Babylon. They've been gone in foreign lands. And God has restored them to the land with the calling to rebuild the temple. So they've laid the foundation. Uh, They've been in the land. They've hit discouragement. Things haven't gone the way they 
wanted. There's been infighting. There's been persecution from outside forces. And so they've given up. And so there's this 20-year period where the temple foundation is built, but the temple hasn't been laid. And in comes Zechariah along with Haggai. Haggai's first. And then Zechariah comes on the scene to say, finish the job. And so what have we looked at? We saw chapter one, this call to repentance. Like you've got to change the way you're thinking. If you turn back to the Lord, he's going to turn back to you. Then the next, really from almost all of chapter one to chapter six are these eight visions that he receives in one night that are wacky, crazy visions that all serve to encourage them to continue the work and to remind them that God had promised that it was going to get done. You get into chapter seven and eight and there's a series of messages. It's almost like a combination of sermons that he had given. And then from nine to the end, is nine to 14 is just two oracles. So these two messages from God that he wants to give the people. One of them is chapter nine, 10 and 11. One of them is 12, 13 and 14. Nine through 11, he's talking about this Messiah figure that's coming. 12 through 14, he's talking about what this end kingdom is gonna look like. So this is where we're at in the story. Last week, we made the turn out of all the wackiness into this first depiction of this king that was going to ride into Jerusalem on a colt and, and, and showing us, and we looked at the fulfillment that Jesus had of that. This week, God is really starting to turn. This week and next week, he's really going to hit hard the leadership issues that exist in Israel. And you're going to see the contrast between the bad leaders that are there and the good leaders that are to come. So we're going to read through Zechariah chapter 10. I've broken this down into four sections. Uh, So it starts with a request, it's followed by a rebuke, then there's a revelation, and then there's some reassurance. So let's uh, have that in mind as we read, and then we'll go back and break the passage a little bit apart. Um, So this is Zechariah chapter 10, start at verse 1. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who sends the thunderstorms. He gives showers of rain to all people and plants of the field to everybody. The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the people of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. Together they will be like warriors in battle, trampling their enemy into the mud of the streets. They will fight because the Lord is with them and they will put the enemy horse in I will strengthen Judah and save the tribes of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. They will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. The Ephraimites will become like warriors and their hearts will be glad as with wine. Their children will see it and be joyful. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. I will signal for them and gather them in. Surely I will redeem them. They will be as numerous as before. Though I scatter them among the peoples, yet in distant lands they will remember me. They and their children will survive and they will return. I will bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to Gilead and Lebanon and there will not be enough room for them. They will pass through the sea of trouble. The surging sea will be subdued and all the depths of the Nile will will dry up. 
Assyria's pride will be brought down. Egypt's scepter will pass away. I will strengthen them in the Lord and in his name they will live securely, declares the Lord. So open your doors, Lebanon, so that fires may devour your cedars. Wail, you juniper, for the cedar has fallen. The stately trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, the dense forest has been cut down. Listen to the wail of the shepherds. The rich pastures are destroyed. Listen to the roar of the lions. The lush thicket of the Jordan is ruined. If you remember back to last week, I don't expect you to remember this, so I'm going to remind you. The passage ends with this beautiful picture that I asked. Does this image point ahead to communion? Remember? This blessing. It says, the Lord, the, the God... The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. So at the end of the last passage, this promise, been returned to the land, being saved, sparkling like jewels in a crown. And the final statement is a statement of abundance. There's going to be grain in abundance that strengthen the men. There's going to be wine in abundance that's going to strengthen the young women. They're going to thrive because of the abundance that God has promised. So in light of the promise that he's just given of abundance, look at the request that he starts with in the very next sentence. So ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who sends the thunderstorms. God has promised abundance to the people of Israel, but they have a work to do to invite that abundance to take place in their life. And what's the work that they're called to do? Ask the Lord to bring rain in the springtime. So I get confused by this part of the passage. I'm going to tell you why. This could go one of two ways, and I need you to help me figure out which one of these two ways it is. Is this a warning Or is this a rebuke to Israel for what they're doing? So look at the passage. Ask the Lord. You need to ask him. It's him that sends the thunderstorms. He gives showers. He plants the fields. But the idols, the household idols, they speak deceitfully. The fortune tellers and soothsayers, they see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. And so the people wander like sheep without a shepherd. And so so what is happening here? Option number one, God is warning them. You've returned to the land. Don't slip back into the way that you used to be. What was the way they used to be? Rather than coming to God for provision, they turned to idols and the worship of other gods to give them the things that that, that they wanted. So option number one is, is Zechariah is looking at them. God is speaking through them and warning them, don't slip back into your old ways. So ask the Lord, don't ask the idols. I wonder if this is a rebuke. I wonder if they've returned to the land and they've already returned to idols. If the rain is not falling the way they're expecting it, and so they're already looking back to the previous slide, Eric. Um, if they've already fallen back into idolatry, is that what they're doing? Uh, and so God is saying, look, you are looking to idols to provide the rain. You're going to find these fortune tellers to predict if there's going to be a good crop this year. Quit that and start asking the Lord. It's him who provides the harvest. I don't know what way it's going. I, I, I like exhortations. I feel like I want to be like, hit them hard. Um, it may be a warning. 
Um, but based on everything else that's gone on in the passage, they're wrestling in the book so far. They're wrestling with idolatry. They're wrestling with slipping back into the old ways. So there's this call here. Ask the Lord for rain. Don't slip into seeking the information you need in other places. We live in a time where a passage like this really makes no sense to us. We, we don't live in an agricultural, well, some of you do, and some of you grew up in this. We don't, the majority of us don't live in an agricultural uh, like way of living. Uh, so we're not dependent on the crops in order to eat. We go to Fred Meyer or Albertsons or Trader Joe's, if you're posh. Uh, we, we have the places that, that we go. We don't walk outside and go, oh, if it doesn't rain today, our family's going to starve. If it doesn't rain today, then America is not going to have any food because we import so much food. So we don't understand this. We also don't have household idols that we set up in our living rooms. Well, some of you might. I guess I don't know what you're up to. If you do that, let's talk about it and let's not do that anymore. Um, But they had these idols in their house that they would go to and they would ask for information and wisdom and other prophets would say, are you so idiotic? Like you chop down a tree, you use half the wood to build a fire and then you set up the other half and pretend it's a God and you try and talk to it. Are you so stupid? Uh, is, is, Is what other prophets say about this. But they're in this spot where they're pursuing Uh, outside information rather than coming to God himself. They're being warned, don't be like that. And as I say, because we don't live in an agrarian society, because we don't have household idols at home, we don't tend to see this as being very applicable to us. But as it always is through scripture, you've got to ask yourself the question, who are the household gods that you're worshiping? Who are the soothsayers that you go to? What are the fortune tellers that you seek? And sometimes it's the the advice column that we go to. Sometimes it's a self-help book. Sometimes it's the preferred speaker that we jump on their podcast to get a little uh, jolt of electricity that we need to know what we want to do. Sometimes it's the people that we have in our life that are good and wise and godly that we go to for advice. But the word of Zechariah is this. When you need something, when you need advice, when you need comfort, when you need hope, when you need provision... Ask the Lord to send the rain. Don't go to the other sources. The other sources are helpful, but do we go to him first? I'm going to come back to this in a big way uh, at the end. But this is the request. So he starts with this request. Ask the Lord for rain. Don't go to these other places. And what's the danger of going to the other places? So as he moves from the request, he moves into this rebuke of the leaders. The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. So my anger burns against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. As you look at our world, as you look at our country, as you look at our city, as you look at the churches that make them up, do they look like entities that are guided by a fearless shepherd towards the right future for the country? Or does our country look like sheep wandering around without a shepherd? Do the churches around us look like sheep wandering around without a shepherd? I would submit uh, that the world around us looks a lot more like this passage. Why? Because our idols are speaking deceitfully. The fortune tellers that we pursue are telling lies and we're buying into dreams and visions that are false. 
the people that we go to, the, the names that we look to for advice, the books that we read, the TV shows that we listen to, the celebrities that we worship uh, are, are feeding us empty dreams. The leaders over our churches and over our countries are failing at the job that they are uh, ideally supposed to do, which is lead the people in the way of Jesus. But sadly, we live in a fallen world. We're led by fallen leaders who so often fail to come to God first. I say all the time, I say it to our leadership team all the time, as go the leaders, so go the church. I think it's the message of this passage. The leaders were allowing the people idol worship. The leaders were allowing people to go chase after false gods. The leaders, in some senses, are the ones that are leading them into it and encouraging them in it. So God challenges them. The leaders are without their shepherd, and so they lead a flock that is shepherdless. So God's anger burns against those who are called to lead. I think as I look around the world scene, I think there are uh, lots of ways that God is praising leaders around the world and the things that they're doing, but I think there are lots of rebukes and accountability that is coming to the people who are leading the world outside of the way of Jesus. Uh, I think when we look inside the church, I think there are lots of churches that are too content going through the motions, we're too comfortable doing church the way that we've learned it, that we're failing at the mission that God has called us to do. I think there are lots of people in a world like this that have many questions and no answers. I think there are many Christians that sit in churches who have lots of questions and no answers. And so we, the leaders, will be held accountable to that. God wants to rebuke them. And let me, let me bring this down a little bit more. Don't assume when I'm talking about this stuff that it means just the president of the U.S. or just the pastor of the church or the elders or the deacons or whatever leadership structure that we have. If you have walked with Jesus for any length of time, you're a leader in the church. And so you're also responsible. If you've walked with Jesus for a long time, whether you have the position of elder or not, you carry an elder responsibility in the church. So when God is looking at the church in America and saying, I see people that are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he's looking at those of us walking in the church who have walked with him for a while saying, why are you not doing more to lead my people the way I want them to be led? My anger burns against those shepherds and there is consequence that comes to them, a harsh rebuke to these leaders. You don't have to look far in the world to see people that match that description. But the beauty is, while the leaders are failing over the nation of Israel, while leaders are failing around the world and in our churches, God provides revelation to the people what true leadership looks like and who the true leader is. He says, the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the people of Judah, and he will make them like a proud horse in battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. Together, they're going to be like warriors in battle, trampling their enemy into the mud of the streets. They'll fight because the Lord is with them, and they'll put the enemy horsemen to shame. This beautiful image in this time when Israel is persecuted, they're oppressed, they're battered, they're discouraged, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. God is reminding them, I'm going to deal with these leaders that are failing in the job. Look to me. I am the leader who cares for the people. So how did he open it? Ask me to send the rain when it's springtime and I will give you the thing that is needed. Um, 
this whole section of Zechariah 9, 10, and 11 has so many references that point ahead to Jesus, and some of them are in this passage. If you, you look at these verses, from Judah comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him, from him every ruler. God cares for his people despite all the leadership failures. And in this passage, he's pointing ahead to the kind of leader that they're supposed to have, the kind of victory they're going to walk in, and points ahead to one particular leader, uh, I would argue, one particular leader here that is going to lead the people forward. Now again, there's lots of things in Zechariah where there's two, two options or multiple options. This is another one of those places. Some people, when they look at this, would say this is, this is descriptions of different kinds of leaders that are going to help lead Israel forward. And so you've got the people that are foundational uh, upon which other things are built. You've got the tent pegs who are, are put in place to kind of hold all the structure together. You've got the battle bowl people that are going to go out and take some ground. And then you've got the rulers and administrators that are over all of those helping them work together. And then it says together they're going to be like warriors in battle. So option number one is this is talking about a range of leaders that God gives to his people to help lead them forward. I think that may be true, but I think what is more true based on the wording in here is that this is more revelation pointing ahead to Jesus, right? You know some of this language, the cornerstone, Isaiah 28, I lay in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who lies on it will never be stricken with panic or as it's quoted multiple times in places like Romans and, and First Peter, um, they'll never be put to shame. Uh, Peter quotes Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone upon which everything is built. Less familiar, the tent peg. Isaiah is, is talking about this person, Eliakim, who's going to lead the people forward. And while he's talking about him, part of what he's saying points ahead to this Messiah figure that will ultimately come. And it says, I will clothe him with your robe, fashion your sash around him, and hand your authority over to him. He'll be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a tent peg into a firm place. He will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him. It's offspring and offshoots, all the lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. So all the, the workers and all of the vessels within the temple, uh, Peter's, Peter, when he's talking about this stuff, as you come to him, the living stone, we are the temple being built into the spiritual priesthood. So there's this image here of Jesus as the tent peg on which all of us hang, upon which all of the glory of God comes, all of the honor of the house of the Father is. If you jump ahead to a place like Revelations 3, it says, talking of Jesus, the one who's holy, who's true, he holds the key of David. What he opens, no one will shut. And what he shuts, no one will open. Uh, he also, um, as the tent peg, that you think about Jesus being described as this one who holds the key of David. And then you think of him as he talks to Peter on this rock, I build my church and I'm going to give you the keys uh, and passes the keys. This is clearly a reference to this person who will come, who will carry this authority over God's people. The third part in here, the battle bow. God is the righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. He does not relent. He will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string the bow, a reference to the judgment that, that is coming, the, the messenger of God who's going to come and bring restitution to his people. 
Revelation 19, I saw this rider. I saw heaven stand open. There was this white horse. His rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth is the sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. These images in scripture that point ahead to Jesus coming as the victorious warrior to defeat the enemies of God's people. And lastly, every ruler... If you continue that passage in Revelation, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Little plug, you see the tattoo he's got on his thigh. Jesus has tattoos. Colossians 1.6, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. You think about Philippians 2, that Jesus emptied himself and made himself nothing. And what happens? He gives himself up to death on a cross and then God exalts him to the right hand of the Father and gives him the name that's above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue on heaven and earth would confess that he is the Father. So in this passage, as it talks about from Judah, the lion of Judah is gonna come. He's the cornerstone, he's the tent peg. He's the battle boat. He is every ruler and the one over every ruler. These promises of revelation that the ultimate leader we are looking for is Jesus, not a Republican president, not a Democrat president, not a libertarian president, not a green president, not whatever other option president there is in there. The solution we're looking for is not a revamp of the American political system. We're looking for Jesus, right? We're not looking for Scotty as a pastor or a new pastor to replace him or multiple pastors to come through all the churches in the city and just flip the boat upside down. We're looking for Jesus. And we so often put our hopes in all the wrong places. We get angry at the leadership and what they're doing. We get frustrated with the system and the way it is. But God says, without Christ, we're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He will bring punishment to the leaders that fail to lead him in their way. And at the end of the day, Jesus will return and restore all of it. With God in charge and the Messiah coming as promised, God then goes on in this passage to give all these future reassurances to Israel. What does it look like when your bad leadership is taken away? What does it look like uh, when you move forward led by the Messiah? What is the promise? And it's another one of those, I'm hoping for the... Well, I'm hoping you're getting familiar with the word inclusio, right? I say it a lot. Where, where it's like an envelope. There's, there's a sentence at the top and a sentence at the bottom that, that encapsulates it and wraps up everything in between. This is one of these moments. This whole passage is an inclusio. It starts with, I'm going to strengthen them. Verse 6, and it ends, I'm going to strengthen them in the Lord. And what's he going to do as he strengthens his people, as God himself strengthens them? I will strengthen them. I will save them. I will restore them. I will answer them. I skipped one, but it actually says, I'll whistle to them. And in that process, they're going to respond and I'm going to gather them. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to bring them back to the land. And I'm going to strengthen them in the Lord. I don't know where you're at in your journey right now. If you're looking encouraged, if you're looking at the world and you're grieved, if you're looking at your bank balance and you're frustrated, if you're looking at your relationship history and you feel beat up, if you're looking at your pursuit of the Lord and fed up with flipping back into the same issues over and over and over again, the promise is 
When the Messiah is on his throne in your life, it comes with strengthening, salvation, restoration, answered prayer, his whistling to you to gather you back to him, redemption, and being strengthened in the Lord. So let me return to the question at the beginning. The passage says, ask the Lord for rain. Ask the Lord for rain. The question is simply this, who or what do you depend on for the things that you're needing in your life? It's Mother's Day, right? We all depend on our mothers because they're amazing. We run to them when we have need. Uh, But that's not who we're supposed to be asking for the rain that we need. The entire chapter sets up this contrast between what the idols can't do and what the Lord has done, is doing, and will continue to do. And so this exhortation is, ask the Lord for rain. I want you to think of the idols. What are the soothsayers today? The astrology columns that we read. You've all thought about what that is, right? If you're here and you use that, I I apologize, but I'm just going to say it. The most ridiculous thing in the world that every person ever born in March in all of history has the exact same personality type and the exact same prediction of what is going to happen in their life this week. I'm like, "Eh -eh." so if you put a lot of hope in that, I tell you it's not okay. Yeah, it's wrong. Advice columns. I don't know if you're one of those people that likes to jump on and see what Ask Annie has to say about the issues in the world today. I don't know if you're one of the people that likes to pick up self-help, help, self, self, self-help books uh, to try and figure out who I am, what's going on. Again, they're not bad in and of themselves, but if that's where we're going instead of to him. Who are the names quote unquote, in your life. They're the websites you go to, the columns you go to, the books that you read, the sermons that you listen to, them and only them, because they are the ones that have the answers to the issues in the world today. And so we limit ourselves to them and we come to them. I don't understand, so I'm going to ask them what they think. We're engaged in this when we turn to a favorite author before we seek God's face to work out how to help our children behave better. We're doing it when we think another degree or position or job is going to give us more peace than the one that we currently have. We do it when we place our hope in political parties rectifying the problems we see and instilling the values of the kingdom rather than the Messiah and rather than you living out in front of people. There's so many ways that we chase things that we shouldn't be chasing. It's, It's when your mood is affected by how well your sports team does. Your sports team doesn't do as well as you want and you're mid-tanks for days and you're miserable to people because you didn't get your way. There is hope and value and idolatry happening in that moment when, when your team wins and you think that gives you permission to be rude and belligerent to the people around about you and you walk on cloud nine because you get more hope from a team winning than you do from the power of Jesus at work in your soul. The things that we chase teach us lies They're full of empty dreams and empty visions. Politicians are amazing at selling us a vision of the future that has glimmers of truth but will never provide what Jesus offers us. Relationships offer glimmers of hope that we can no longer be lonely and finally someone will value us. And we quite happily walk away from the values of Jesus in the pursuit of it. But the invitation God gives us is ask the Lord for rain. Are you thirsty? 
Are you thirsty for something? More purpose, more power, more vision? Ask the Lord for rain. Are you laboring hard at life and seeing very little fruit? How does fruit come when you ask the Lord for rain? To water. Are your relationships barren? Then ask the Lord for rain. And his rain will refresh and quench and soften. Are you stuck in hopelessness, seeing no way ahead and no way out? Then ask the Lord for rain. Are you in physical pain? You wake up in the morning, you can't seem to see beyond the excruciating agony that plagues your life. Then ask the Lord for rain. Is your heart broken? And grieving, you wonder if you'll ever move on. Ask the Lord for rain. Do you just feel stuck in life with no way out? Ask the Lord for rain. When you read what Zechariah says or what God says through Zechariah, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the Messiah is coming, so give up doesn't say the Messiah is coming, so just stop what you're doing, complain about the world, and just hang on tight till he comes back. They had a long way to go. He says, ask for rain. And it doesn't say labor away pointlessly, just waiting for a day in the future where the Messiah is going to come and he's going to turn everything the right way around and everything you do right here, we're just kind of holding things in place and tidying over as best we can. Ask the Lord for rain. So in your life right now, there are things that you do not have. James says you don't have because you don't ask. There are things in our life that we want and we say, I really want this thing to happen. And we pray once or twice and then we get frustrated that we don't get the answer. We're called to call on God repeatedly and petition. There's things, breakthrough that you want, sins you want to be shed. There's opportunities that you want to have. There's victories you want to rejoice in. There's transformation you want to see in the church and in the world. Ask the Lord for rain. And it seems silly right now to encourage that. We're sitting in May and the dismal rain. Maybe we should ask God for some sunshine uh, and maybe we'll answer. This is the invitation to this passage. There are all of these promises that were given to Israel. There are all of these promises that through Israel, through Jesus fulfilling what Israel was supposed to do, through our commitment to him, it comes through Israel, through Jesus to us. All of these promises are for us. You can have strength, redemption, salvation, purpose, value, victory, but it only comes if you're willing to labor in asking the Lord for rain. So what area of your life needs rain today? And let's ask him to do it. God, we need rain. God, it's so easy to look to my bank account and my salary at the beginning of the month instead of to ask you for provision. God, it's so easy to look at courses that I can take to help me figure out what needs figured out rather than asking you. Lord, it's so easy to just do things in my own ability instead of coming to you, to go to friends, to go to people, to read the books, the conferences, 
or to sit in despair rather than come to you. But God, you invite us. It's a command and it's an invitation. Ask for rain, watch what happens. So God, what I pray for our church is that we'd be like Elijah who went up on the mountain in the middle of a drought and he prayed for rain and he interceded powerfully and and all of a sudden out in the distance he sees a tiny little puff of gray cloud and then he runs full force because he knows a storm is coming. Lord, that's the kind of church that we want to be. So God, as we look at a barren uh, Western church, as we look at the dryness and brokenness and lostness and barrenness of our country, God, we ask for rain, more of your spirit, more of your power, more of your vision poured out to challenge the lies and the false dreams and the false visions that are being presented to us. So God, would you move, rain, would you fall, and would you start in me and in us? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.